Good morning, church family. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We will be moving into the second chapter here of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in a few moments. It's wonderful to sing praises to God this morning as our children uh, work their way out in the back. Let me remind you that today is the third Sunday of the month, which means that we will not only gather one time as a church, but we will gather two times. That tonight at six o'clock, we will gather for an evening worship service, an opportunity for us to sing more together, for us to pray together, for us to come to the Lord's table together. We will receive communion tonight as we typically do during our third Sunday services. You're going to have a special opportunity tonight to hear uh, a sermon from our uh, director of student ministries, who's also in our Uh, elder process as an elder candidate, Nathaniel Winslow. So this will be Nathaniel's first time to preach corporately to our church. So I would encourage you, like I did with the interns last month, be here for no other reason. Obviously, the church is gathered. We want to be together when the church gathers. Uh, But to be here to support Nathaniel, we're excited for that. They actually have a student ministry activity all afternoon, and then he's going to come in here and preach. So he was brave with his scheduling. Um, But be sure that you are here for that. And then a good portion of our third Sunday service today is going to be dedicated to to answering questions that members of our church have submitted about the Constitution and bylaw recommendations our elders presented back in August. And so if you have questions concerning those things, we encourage members to pre-submit questions for this first of two question and answer sessions. The second one's going to be more uh, live than this, but we ask people to submit for this one, and uh, I'm going to do my best to address all of them Uh, this evening in the time allotted to me. So I encourage you to be back here tonight at six o'clock. We look forward to gathering together uh, again. Would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word, if you are able? So we turn our attention now to 1 Corinthians chapter two. I'm going to begin in verse one and read down through verse five. This is the word of the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Church, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and its goodness to us that we can know that it is from you, that we can recognize that it is your truth. And because it is truth from the creator and sustainer of the world, it is wholly authoritative for, you, for your creation and specifically for your people. This church, Nansman River Baptist Church, gathered here together, these saints of God, look to your word now, who by the power of your Holy Spirit have been radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus that is the central message of your word and the central message of our church. Would you remind us of that today through these words? Would you help us once again to be reminded of the unity that we have through the gospel of Jesus Christ, a diverse 
people gathered here because the gospel has changed us. May we never lose focus of that message, simple and clear, that Christ was crucified so that we might be changed. Help us now as we come to your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning's sermon is entitled, The Message Matters. Many commentators and uh, fellow preachers, when they are preaching through 1 Corinthians, will often include the, last, or the first five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 with the last verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 because they are in the same line of thought. Now, as I told you, the first four chapters really are making one unified argument, and that is that the church of God should find unity in the gospel above all else. And I could have preached these five verses last week, but I thought it would be helpful for us, as I often do, to slow down for a moment and for us to have a sermon where we ponder the gospel message where we just take these few verses and allow them over the course of the next 40 minutes or so to, to saturate our minds, to, to invade our hearts, and for us to be mesmerized by the simple message that Jesus Christ was crucified for you, for me, for us. I think I've told this story before, actually, because, well, you run out of things to talk about sometimes when you're trying to illustrate, but if I haven't, it's fine. If, if this is the first time you hear it, it's great. About 20 years ago, I actually think it was 20 years ago, a good friend of mine was getting married, and uh, we wanted to go do something fun before he got married. And so three of us, these are two friends I've had since I was in kindergarten, uh, decided that we would take a road trip to Chicago. But not just any road trip. Um, we wanted to reenact the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And that's exactly what we did. We did everything that they did in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, they didn't let us sing in a parade. That was a little disappointing. Um, but we went everywhere that they went in that movie. Um, we, we went to the, the top of the tower. We went and ate in a nice restaurant. We went to a Cubs game. We did, we did the whole thing, including going to the Art Institute of Chicago. Now, I am not an art guy. It's not really a thing for me, but they, in the movie, go to the Art Institute of Chicago. And I think one of the more memorable moments in that movie is that one of the characters becomes mesmerized by a specific painting. It's a painting known as a Sunday on Le, Le Grand Jatte, which is French. It's a French painting from the late 1800s. It's gigantic. The painting is taller than me and over 10 feet wide, made entirely of dots. I, I can't imagine how long it took the artist to paint this particular painting, one dot at a time, over 10 feet wide and six feet tall, painting this beautiful picture of a French island and people enjoying a Sunday afternoon together. The closer you get to it, the more you see the dots, and the further away you move from it, the more you see the big picture. It truly is a mesmerizing work of art. 
And I found myself, as the character in the movie did, just really taken in by standing in front of this gigantic painting and staring for quite some time. It's good for us in a similar way as the church of God to take time to be mesmerized by the gospel of Jesus, to slow down and to stare into the goodness that is the message that Christ was crucified for the transformation of sinners and to allow that to permeate into our hearts. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for a very long time and you would say, Pastor, as Paul does later in, in 1 Corinthians, you, you've moved on from milk into meat and this really is, I believe, a, a meat-eating church, probably in more ways than one, but we're a spiritually a meat-eating church. But sometimes the taste of gospel milk draws us back to that which is so crucially important for our faith. So I would encourage you today, church, stand in awe of the gospel of Jesus. The main idea of today's sermon is that the message of our church should reflect the clear and simple gospel message of Christ crucified to transformed sinners. We will see this in three ways as we walk through these five verses together. The first is this, that Christ crucified is the central message of the gospel. Look at what Paul says in verses one and two here of chapter two. And I, this is Paul, when I came to you brothers, this is brothers and sisters, he is addressing the whole church gathered, did not come proclaiming to you the wisdom of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This harkens back to what we considered last week where Paul talks about the message of the cross. And I told you last week that, that this week we, we would explain what, is, what does Paul mean when he, when he says the message of the cross. And it, it's this message that, that we want to recognize is the central tenet to the good news. That Jesus Christ was crucified for his church. And that is this message that Paul says was the central message, is the only thing that he knew amongst them. Now, it does not mean that Paul didn't talk about other things. I'm sure as a tent maker, he talked with other tent makers about making tents. And I'm sure as a Christian leader, as we will see throughout this letter that he writes them, that he talked about them about many, a many number of things, about what it means to be obedient to Christ and how we put off sin and put on Jesus in our lives. But when he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, he's saying, if you were to take the totality of what I said and boil it down to its bare essential, what you'll find, what will be left is that Jesus Christ died for us. This is in stark contrast to a, a, a well-known profession of the day. Anytime we consider Paul's letters to churches in this Greco-Roman world, I, I make mention of this, that, that Paul was living in a day, this church was living in a day where 
public orators were very famous. They didn't have Ferris Bueller's day off. And so they would go and listen to people from out of town speak. It was why he said in the previous chapter that the Greeks seek wisdom. This was what they did, even for entertainment purposes. And so people would look at Paul's speech and his message and the the way he proclaimed it during his time in Corinth before he writes this letter, and they would think it was really of not very much account at all because he did not come, he says, with verse 1, with lofty speech. Could also translate that eloquence or or wisdom, and we could think about that like worldly wisdom. That that Paul's message stood in stark contrast to pretty much everybody else that would visit Corinth and would seek to gain an audience. I find it interesting something Paul writes along these lines in Second Corinthians, his his next letter that that is contained here in the New Testament for us. In Second Corinthians chapter ten, he says this. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he's in Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For if I boast a little too much of our our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say, and this is what people said about Paul, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. So sometimes people say, if I could could listen to anybody preach, I'd I'd love to hear the apostle Paul preach. Paul actually says, ah, you probably wouldn't. His, he, he admits to what people accuse him of. His letters are really good. His sermons, literally in the book of Acts, put a guy to sleep and he fell out the window. And yet, he says it's not about eloquence. It's not about lofty speech. It's, it's not about wisdom, worldly wisdom. It's about Jesus Christ and him crucified. We think about this in the way that we proclaim the gospel and the way that we talk about the goodness of our God towards us. It can't be about our ability to convince or conjole or coerce. The gospel at its core is the simple proclamation that Jesus died so sinners can live. Listen to how Paul writes it later in this book. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as one untimely born. He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though... It was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached 
And so you believed. Hear, hear, hear the simple, clear message of what Paul says. And he gets into this talking about how he became an apostle. And yet he returns to that, that central truth. We preached God, Christ crucified, and you believed this unto salvation. Church, this is it. This is what saves. It's Jesus on a cross in our place so that we might be radically transformed into his image. This is the central message of the gospel, Christ and him crucified. Listen, without Christ crucified, which many people today want to take out of the gospel message, they think it is somehow paints God as cruel. That the doctrine that we would affirm here known as penal substitutionary atonement, those are some big words. It simply means this, that the wrath of God against sinners because of his holiness and his justice, instead of pouring out his wrath on you and I who deserved it, he poured it out on Jesus on the cross Dying a sinner's death, the one who didn't deserve it, in our place, taking on the wrath of God so that he might then impart to us his righteousness. We can't remove Christ from the cross and still have a gospel. We can't take out Jesus bearing the weight of our sin and enduring the wrath of God in our place and still proclaim salvation. There is no salvation if Jesus isn't hanging on a cross bearing my sin and bearing my shame and bearing the wrath that I deserved and the wrath that you deserve for your sin. There is no salvation if that is not true. This is why Paul says the central message of the gospel is Christ and him crucified. We must resist the movement that seeks to, to, to lessen what the cross truly is. Because if we in any way lessen the severity of the cross, then we proclaim a gospel that is unable to save anyone because we are still then under the wrath of God. We can't be saved if God's wrath hasn't been poured out on his perfect sacrifice as we sang the right man of God who is on our side. There is no salvation outside of Jesus bearing your, the punishment for your sin and for mine. This is it. This is what saves us. And so when we seek to remove the severity of the cross, we take the cross away from being the central message of the gospel. Or when we mix things with the message of the cross, when the church has done this for centuries, unfortunately, We've walked away from the central message. We've, we've become blinded by worldly wisdoms and worldly schemes. And we've allowed then things like prosperity or liberation or works or sacraments or whatever have you to mix in and say that, yeah, it's Christ crucified, but it's also these other things. And when we do that, we miss the gospel. And when we miss the gospel, we miss the gospel in such a way that people are unable to believe. Think about the severity of this for a moment. 
that when the church gets the gospel wrong, sinners go to hell. When the church gets the gospel wrong, souls perish. Oh, church. The central message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died in your place. Number two, the Holy Spirit's power and work in the church is demonstrated by the transformed lives of sinners. The Holy Spirit's power at work in the church is demonstrated by the transformed lives of sinners. Look at verses three and four. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling in my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the spirit and of power. Now, Paul's going to contrast two things here. He's going to contrast his presence which he has already written about, as we read in 2 Corinthians, is, is, is weak, is perceived as being weak and really of no, no account at all, that he is recognizably weak and his presentation is in fear and much trembling. And that, that, that it's not lofty speech, it's not plausible words, right? So he's con- contrasting his own ability with the ability of the Holy Spirit, then he says, my message was not in plausible words of wisdom because it was in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now, the way this is worded in the original language, we have to understand that spirit and power are connected together. That these aren't separate things, but these are unifying, this is one unifying idea that, that when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus, the true gospel of Jesus, it, it, it's then recognized and revealed as the power of the Holy Spirit because he changes people's lives. Paul cannot, by the way, be thinking here of external demonstrations of the Spirit's power. So why, why isn't that what Paul has in mind here? That can't be what Paul has in mind here because of just how messed up the church at Corinth was concerning external demonstrations of the Spirit's power. When we get to 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14, we're going to see just how much correction this church needed on the subject of the Spirit's power manifested in their lives through spiritual gifts. For instance, at the beginning of that section in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. They're ignorant. That's what he calls them, okay? He said it nicely, but that's what they were. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. So he compares it to their previous life as pagan Gentiles. And it's like, just, just as you sought after false idols then, you're, you're ignorant now about the work of the Spirit in your life. So he goes back then in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 12 to the very basics of the Spirit's power manifested in the life of his church. Watch this. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaks in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So here's what Paul says. He's about to talk about spiritual gifts. He's about to talk about all of that with them and we're gonna get to it in time. But what he begins with is this. The very basic understanding of the Spirit's power is that we go from saying Jesus is accursed, we could say it like this, we go from saying I'm in control of my life to saying Jesus is Lord, or we could say it like this, that I'm going to follow Jesus with my life. 
right? So what is it that is the central demonstration of the Spirit's power? It's not some external manifestation of those powers at all. It's simply that the Spirit of God takes those who are dead in their trespasses and sin and makes them alive in Christ. The Bible has lots of metaphors for this. Jesus talks about it like being born again, right? That, that you go from being born once to being to something that's impossible on your own, to being born again. Old Testament prophets speak about it like this, that God takes that which is stone, inanimate, and turns it into something that is alive, is living. That however we want to think about the power of the Holy Spirit, it simply comes down to that the Spirit transforms us from being sinners to being Christ-like. That because of the power of the Spirit at work in the true proclamation of the gospel, people believe and are radically transformed. Paul writes about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Like this, he says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, he says, we know that you're with us. We know that God has chosen you, that you're a part of God's people because the Holy Spirit demonstrated his power in you, not with any external thing, but simply by changing your heart, by making you something different. So when we think about the primary work of the Holy Spirit, particularly as it relates to the gospel, we're not looking for some sort of wild and fanciful manifestation of Holy Spirit power. All we're looking for is for people to do that which they are enabled to do in their own flesh. Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then begin to follow him with their lives. Listen to the way the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said it. This is a little, this is a longer quote than I would normally read, but listen to this. Spurgeon says, what is it that makes the young man devote himself as a missionary to the cause of God, to leave father and mother and go into distant lands. It is a thing of power that does it. It is the gospel. What is it that constrains the faraway minister in the midst of cholera to climb up that creaking staircase and stand by the bed of some dying creature who has that tragic disease? It must be a thing of power which leads him to risk his life it is love of the cross of Christ which urges him to do it. What is it which enables one man to stand up before a multitude of his fellows, all unprepared it may be, but determined that he will speak nothing but Christ and him crucified? What is it that enables him to cry like the war horse of Job in battle? Yes, more glorious in might. It is a thing of power that does it. It is Christ crucified. What encourages this timid female to walk down the road some wet evening that she may go and sit by the victim of a contagious fever? 
What strengthens her to go through that den of thieves and pass by the depraved and the perverted? What influences her to enter into the house of death and there sit down and whisper words of comfort? Does gold make her do it? They are too poor to give her gold. Does fame make her do it? She will never be known nor written among the mighty women of this earth. What makes her do it? What impels her to it? It is the power, the thing of power. It is the cross of Christ. Church, let this be the kind of power we seek. Not fame or influence or riches or any other worldly promises. Let our hearts be convinced that real power, true power, is the saving power of the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of sinners. Let's give our lives to this power. Set our minds on proclaiming this power. Attune our minds to what it means to actually see this power that transforms lives. When we walk in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we demonstrate the greatest power on earth. You want an external demonstration of power because that's what the church at Corinth wants. Unfortunately, that's what far too many Christians claim to want today. They want to see with their eyes the external demonstration of power in the lives of Christians. And Paul says, if that's what you're looking for, you've missed it. Because the greatest power on this planet, in this universe, is the power of the Holy Spirit quietly working right now in someone's heart to draw them through the cross of Christ to salvation. There is no other demonstration of power I could show you that would be greater than this one. None. I've got nothing else to offer you. No worldly influence or riches. I can't bring someone up here in a wheelchair and say, get up and walk. And even if I could, it would pale in comparison to the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of sinners to draw them to sainthood. Nothing else. Oh, let us be mesmerized by the power of God today, church. Let us stand and stare at Christ crucified and recognize that the greatest power we will ever experience is when Jesus Christ took us from death to life. That is the Holy Spirit's power in this world. Number three, any message that points away from the central message of the gospel leads to false faith. Paul concludes, he's really concluding Uh, His first point of a few in these first few chapters that started in the middle part of chapter 1. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There are two options here. We can proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with the central message of Christ crucified and the Holy Spirit using that message to radically transform sinners into saints. Or we can proclaim a message in our own power and our own wisdom in which no one can be saved and leads to false belief and false faith. So which is it for us? Which is it for us? 
Are we proclaiming a gospel that leads to faith or are we proclaiming something else? Paul's words here in not just this verse, but this entire section harken back to um, about 500 or so years before Jesus. The people of God are in exile and slowly, it happens slowly, but slowly Israelites begin to return from Babylonian exile into the promised land. And some actually fairly wealthy people are some of the first ones to return and they're, they're, they return to, to kind of govern the area. And a person that's involved in that is named Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel is tasked by the Lord through his prophet Zechariah to rebuild the temple. And in Zechariah 4, 6, Zechariah speaks to, or the Lord speaks to Zerubbabel through Zechariah and says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. How has God done anything since the beginning? Not by might, not by power, but by his spirit. And it is this alone that the power of God alone that can save people. And he does this through the simple proclamation of the clear message of the gospel of Christ crucified. I want to restate something I said at the beginning of the first point. When we mix anything else in with the gospel, like prosperity or liberation or works or sacraments or what have you, we miss the gospel. And when we miss the gospel, we miss the gospel in such a way that people are unable to believe. Verse 5 here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 should serve as a stark warning to the church that if our proclamation rests in our wisdom, in the wisdom of men, or in anything that we have convoluted with the gospel, people are unable to believe because they've not heard something that they can believe in. They've not heard something that the Spirit can then radically use to change their lives. This is why this section begins in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 with Paul saying, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. Let the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Can the cross of Christ be emptied of its power? No. No, it can't. The true proclamation of the cross of Christ can never lose its power. Jesus on the cross sealed the salvation of all who would believe, of his entire church. For however long the Lord tarries, people will continue to come to faith in the gospel of Jesus that points them to the true cross of Christ. So how is it that Paul could say that the cross of Christ is emptied of its power? It's not that the cross is emptied of its power. It's that the church's message empties the cross of its power when we change it. When we stop proclaiming Christ and him crucified, when we start mixing in false teaching with it, we empty the cross of its power when we begin to rely on our own wisdom and our own understanding and our own eloquence instead of simply saying, Jesus died for you, my friend. Believe in this and be saved. False teachers have existed throughout the, the church age. They've existed from the beginning. Truthfully, they've existed from the very beginning. The serpent in, 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 in the garden is a false teacher. And false teachers existed throughout the Old Testament 
They existed throughout the New Testament and they've existed throughout the age. And Paul says this of them in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, what am I doing? I will continue to do. In order to undermine the claims of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as serpents of, as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. One of the ways false teachers work in the lives of people is by convincing them of, of their blessing, of, of signs of their blessing through worldly words and through shows of worldly powers. They'll say things like this. Look at how big our church is. Look at how much God has blessed us. And many cases, particularly in our uh, consumer-based mentality that has been so inundated with health and wealth, prosperity gospel. They'll say, look at how big as the preacher my house is, or look at how fancy my car is, or look at how nice my airplane is. Could you even imagine? And then they use that as some type of evidence that God is at work. And what does Paul say? Their end will correspond to their deeds. Their focus on worldly wisdom and power and wealth and riches will end when this world ends. Listen, folks, we, we've just got to call false gospels false gospels, okay? That's what the true church of God has to do. We've got to be careful with that because there are churches that may disagree with us on some things, but we believe the gospel together and we affirm that they are churches and good Christians, but then there are others who have wandered away from the gospel and we just need to be clear and say they are disguising themselves as servants of righteousness, but in truth, they are servants of the enemy and their deeds will find them out. And anyone who takes the simple message of Jesus Christ and him crucified and removes from it or adds to it is a false teacher leading people to a false faith. So what? Very simple, church. We, the church of God, this people right here, must guard the message of the gospel as we proclaim it as the only hope for salvation. I want us to turn our attention just quickly to Paul's two letters to his protege, two letters really to one of his, the guy's next generation of church leaders. Timothy, he writes two letters, pastoral letters to Timothy who was in Ephesus helping the Ephesian church, planting churches, establishing elders, doing the things that he was doing. We're gonna talk about some of those things tonight. And then and he ends 1 Timothy, the first letter, and, and then begins 2 Timothy, his second letter, really in very similar ways. Listen to this, from, from the end of 1 Timothy in chapter six, verses 20 and 21. Oh, Timothy, Guard the deposit entrusted to you. That's the gospel. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. 
You see what Paul is writing to Timothy is the same thing that we've been talking about. Keep your guard the deposit of the gospel. And this was so important to him when he writes his second letter to him, he begins with it. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Can I just tell you, church, how richly blessed we are as a people? Not because we're wealthy, not because we're powerful, not because we hold any position of prominence at all, but because God has entrusted to us, first as individuals and then placing us into covenant membership into his church, God has entrusted to us the gospel he is deposited here for our safekeeping and our proclamation, the power of God to save sinners by telling them that Jesus died in their place so that they could have life. So what do we then, the church of God, do? We guard this with our very lives. Because not only are there right now surrounding us in our community, in our state, as Barry prayed for earlier, in, in, in our nation, in our world, as we will consider in a couple of weeks on Praise and Go Sunday. Not only in all of those places are there lost people right now who need to hear that gospel, but if Jesus tarries in returning, there are generations after generations who, are, who need this generation to guard the gospel so that those yet born can one day hear it and believe. We should be grateful that Paul guarded the gospel, that he passed it to Timothy who guarded the gospel. And yes, church history is littered with churches that didn't guard the gospel and lost it for sometimes for centuries. There's a reason we call it the dark ages, folks. It was dark because very, very few people actually believed the gospel unto salvation during that period. They had wandered off into the very things that Paul warns us about. And then, praise be to God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, men and women and churches began to see that the truth of the gospel is in the simple message of Christ and him crucified and a reformation begins in the church. We sang one of the songs from that reformation period earlier today. And then over the centuries, not perfectly, but over the centuries, the church has guarded this simple truth that Jesus Christ was crucified for sinners so that they may be radically transformed. And my question for Nansman River Baptist Church is this, how will we take serious the command for this church to guard that message? You may say, wait a second, pastor, I'm not a part of your church. Well, we would love for you to be a part of our church. Just because you show up here doesn't mean you're a part of our church. Church members covenant together to do this together, to be unified in the gospel together. And maybe for you to do that, you need to take this step, actually. Not join a church, but come to faith in Jesus. Believe for the first time that Jesus actually died taking the wrath of God for your sin so that he could then give you his righteousness and you could walk in it. That's the gospel. 
And the only way for you to be right with God is for you to believe that with your whole heart and turn towards Christ in faith and repentance, trusting that he died for you so that you could live in him. And after our service is over, I'll be in the lobby. I'd love to share with you how you can walk with Jesus if you've believed that for the first time unto salvation. Let us help you because that's what the church is here to do, to guard the deposit of the gospel as we help sinners become saints. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you just for how good you are towards us. And there is no better way for us to see your goodness than to reflect on the gospel. We so often take your goodness towards us by how you provide for our needs, how you give us food to eat and money to pay the bills, even money to be left over to do fun things with our families, how you, how you so often guard us from evil. And yes, Father, those are good things that you do for us, but they all pale in comparison to the goodness that you show us through the gospel of Jesus. That on the cross of Calvary, your one and only son hung on, hung on a tree in our place, taking our sin, bearing your wrath, and offering to us salvation. And by the power of your spirit, making us alive together with Christ. Let us guard that gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, will you stand as we worship him?